I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending July 31st. In this episode, Congress has been working on legislation to revive semiconductor manufacturing in the U.S. This week, we interview Adam Kahn, founder of Akon Semiconductor, which specializes in diamond ICs. He's joined by one of his company's board members, Vice Admiral Charles Moore, former commander of the U.S. 5th Fleet. We talk about how Congress might be missing an opportunity to encourage innovation in ICs based on semiconductors other than silicon, about manufacturing capabilities in general, about the requirements of the U.S. military for advanced electronics, and about the impetus for some of the legislation being proposed in the first place. Also, Intel CEO Bob Swan set off a furor when he intimated that Intel might stop developing new process technologies. We discuss what that might mean for semiconductor manufacturers in the U.S., and we also consider how Intel might prosper by going in the complete other direction. For pretty much of all of human economic history, Manufacturing operations have tended to move to wherever it's cheapest for them to be. Given that, it seems perfectly reasonable that most semiconductor manufacturing, which began in the United States, is now done elsewhere. But then the Trump administration started a trade war against China, and then the novel coronavirus led to a global shutdown. The effects of that double whammy on the supply chain is convincing a growing number of Americans that perhaps cost should not be the only factor when America decides where to physically put manufacturing resources. The Trump administration has extended an invitation to TSMC, the world's top foundry, to set up an advanced fab in the U.S. Congress, meanwhile, has been proposing legislation to encourage a revival of U.S. semiconductor manufacturing. One of those is the proposed Chips for America Act, which allocates $20 billion to at least partially defray some of the additional costs of domestic manufacturing. Legislators are clued in well enough to understand that simply building a fab or two is not going to cut it. Some of the funds they are allocating are for packaging, assembly, and other ecosystem elements critical to support a domestic IC manufacturing base. That said, There might be a few things overlooked in America's efforts to revive domestic IC manufacturing. One of those might be a failure to pay enough attention to semiconductors other than silicon. Gallium nitride and silicon carbide are becoming increasingly useful in power electronics, as is diamond. Yes, diamond. The advantage of all three of those semiconductors is that compared to silicon, they are all wide bandgap materials. Akon Semiconductor specializes in circuitry built using diamond. We're about to hear from Adam Kahn, the founder and CEO of the company. Kahn provides input to various government, business, and technology groups on the semiconductor industry and on U.S. competitiveness. He is joined here by Vice Admiral Charles Moore, who goes by his middle name, Willie. Willie Moore started his career as a Navy aviator. He became commander of the U.S. 5th Fleet in Bahrain, and he retired as Deputy Chief of Naval Operations, Fleet Readiness and Logistics in 2004. He subsequently worked with Lockheed Martin, and you'll hear him refer to his experience with the F-35 fighter program later on. 
He joined ACON's board of directors about a year ago. The Department of Defense is one of the organizations in the United States most keenly interested in the efforts to revive domestic semiconductor manufacturing. I asked Admiral Moore about his experiences with sourcing critical technology. I can tell you in my experience, in the, in the early part of my career, everything we owned and operated, whether it was airplanes or weapons or tooling or you name it, was made and manufactured here in the United States. And then it was, um, we got into a desert storm and I was working on the Navy staff in Washington at the time. And we discovered that one of our optical sensors was actually being made outside the country. It was a component of an optical sensor. Mm-hmm. And that country decided to cut it off. And we went into a major emergency to stand up a U.S. supplier and get them into operation. And we came within a few hundred laser-guided bombs of going out of stock uh, for those weapons. Mm-hmm. And that was a wake-up call uh, at that time for the Department of Defense. I don't know what the status is today, but I would bet you if you cataloged every single critical component that we would need for our warfighting efforts, we would find God knows how many items that we don't really have control of the supply chain. So if you interviewed all of the commanders, they would say with metaphysical certainty, we want absolute control of our supply chain. That doesn't necessarily mean literally everything the DOD wants to use has to be made in America. Admiral Moore went on to explain that the U.S. has a network of allies who are manufacturing partners. What I would rather see us do is sort of draw a line that says, these countries are trusted allies and we can bet our supply chain on them. But but we need to look outside that group and, and be very, very specific and decide not to let critical items fall into the hands of those that we don't totally trust. Any large organization is liable to have a supply chain that is vast and exceedingly complex. Many enormous enterprises say they don't fully understand their own supply chains. I asked Admiral Moore if it's even possible for the DOD to manage its entire supply chain. Managing the supply chain for the United States military is an absolute must. Mm -hmm. And all the factors have to be taken into consideration. I don't think there's much more critical than the semiconductor business. If you look, it's the foundation of where we get our most significant advantage is in our weapon systems. We'll go to war with airplanes that probably operate at a deficit on aerodynamic performance, but we make it up with our weapon system performance and our pilot skills. Mm-hmm. So, the, so, so what we're working on in ACON is fundamental to the long-term future readiness of the military. And, and, and the other advantage we have is developing new systems for the future. If we can, if we can find a technology like ACON Diamond technology that can give us faster, cooler, cheaper, 
uh, semiconductors and our avionics systems, uh, we can really uh, enhance our capability going forward. So uh, I, I, I hear your question and your comment. It's a difficult task. It's one we've been doing for many, many years. We'll continue to do it. But I don't think it's that difficult to identify those items that are absolutely crucial to us. And one of them is uh, the semiconductor business. And I didn't even mention, you know, the sort of optical uh, sensor. Uh, We've got a whole host of capabilities that Diamond could enhance. We asked Adam Kahn what the U.S. should be doing if it wants to keep better control of semiconductor technology. He noted that the U.S. still dominates the semiconductor market, not because of manufacturing, but because of innovation. We have to continue to uh, invest in uh, R&D innovation in uh, EUV uh, from a lithography perspective, and we have to invest in the CapEx um, in rendering these extremely small geometries. So one of the things that the advanced materials do for us, and this includes you know, gallium nitride, silicon carbide, uh, but uh, especially diamond, is that we're not reliant upon such small geometries for uh, equating performance, equating switching speeds, uh, equating processing speeds. So you know, the investment wouldn't be in this extreme EUV and seven nanometer and below uh, type processing. This would be reinvestment in the 200 millimeter wafer fabs that are already here, um, not that need to be reshored. The ones that have the existing capability that uh, you know, the Crees of the world, the silicon carbide gallium nitride providers are currently utilizing, Texas Instruments, et cetera. Uh, this allows us not only the US to share some of the costs, but also the, the allies that you referenced uh, across Europe uh, similarly have uh, a, a, an abundance of these type of fabs. So this changes it from you know, single digit fabs uh, that currently render uh, these small chips to now uh, double-digit, triple-digit uh, fabs uh, that could uh, share this burden. So I think we should uh, move away from in, investing in the, uh, reshoring these uh, extreme small geometry jobs in silicon and rather invest in the 200 millimeter fab capability and invest in R&D and the wide band gap. That's an entirely different set of companies with fabs that are not considered leading edge, but could be if we refocus on alternative semiconductors. Those companies include Global Foundries, Skyworks, Texas Instruments, and Cree Semiconductor. I asked Khan what his recommendations would be then. I would make just this comparison that, you know, in the uh, early 2000s, uh, the U.S. Department of Energy uh, put a, a mandate to have more energy efficient wideband gap materials. And because of this, we had the power inverters that started to go to the 1.2 uh, kV uh, with a target at 2 kV. Without this, we wouldn't have the electrical vehicles uh, and hybrid electric, uh, hybrid electric vehicles that we have now. The power inverters would not have been manufactured. This wouldn't have pushed that industry um, to include these materials uh, to allow these cars to be mass manufactured. Now you look at the size of Tesla now uh, in terms of the, the market, uh, it's hugely valued. And this is driven by the investments in, uh, in power electronics and investing in uh, silicon carbide and gallium nitride to achieve uh, these targets. Now, similarly, the DARPA, through the Electronics Resurgence Initiative, has similarly pushed a mandate to have uh, these, these type of performance thresholds using some of the wideband gap materials. But quite similarly to what happened with the American Foundries Act and the, the CHIPS Act, uh, uh, which is another one uh, that's currently being considered, is that uh, Intel and the like lobbied DARPA to extend the silicon platform. So rather than investment and in demonstrating it on wideband gap, uh, it went back to continue the silicon platform, which I mean, really effectively just kicks the can down the road. 
That's not to say that U.S. attention should shift away from silicon entirely, merely that its focus be expanded. No, I'm not recommending a hard seismic shift away um, from the silicon platform. I'm saying that already, you know, through things like the TSV and 3D uh, geometries on these circuits, we're already incorporating other materials to make silicon more efficient, right? We're already including uh, structures to address the thermal limitations in silicon uh, in addition to some of the other issues. So we should be investing in these other materials. The bulk of the fund should go into uh, improving those material yields, uh, capabilities. Uh, I mean, there's a plurality of the nanomaterials, you know, all beyond the nanocarbons. Um, so in addition to diamond, of course, graphene is a major electronics material, uh, you know, carbon nanotubes, the silicon carbide. The investment should go to these materials uh, as they're doing the bulk of the silicon load. So I'm saying silicon is very important, but already you know, these markets are moving away from pure silicon. I think one of the key issues here for this American Foundries Act is to make an investment in new materials, new technology going forward to sort of guarantee that we maintain the leadership in this arena. We can rest assured that our competitors, and at the uh, and I'll just mention one, China are working 24/7 to try to bring this capability to bear. And uh, we don't want to be working from behind. We want to maintain our leadership. And uh, this American Foundries Act should be directed in its, in my opinion, its priority should be how do we not only bring this semiconductor industry back uh, to a robust state in the United States, but how do we invest to develop the new semiconductors of the future? And that's the Acon diamond capability. It's got to be in there in a big way because we're the guys that can do it. And if we don't do it, the Chinese will. Much of our conversation with Adam Kahn and Willie Moore to this point was about military electronics. I asked them about the importance of leadership in commercial electronics. Uh, I, I think they, they go hand in glove. Um, if you, you don't have to... Uh, look any further than GPS as an example, where we, we needed that kind of accuracy in our uh, navigation uh, capability in the military. We, we developed it, we fielded it, and now it is essential to the life of most people on the planet Earth, if you think about it. Um, I find it stunning every time I go out with a dry, in a dry, <laughs> drive somewhere that I don't know how I could do it with a handheld map. But that's a fantastic example of how these uh, technologies we develop in the military, they move into the commercial world. And I think in the case of uh, diamond technology, um, there's a ton of uh, commercial applications uh, that uh, could be uh, in the offing very soon. Earlier, we alluded to the differences between silicon and other materials such as gallium nitride, silicon carbide, and diamond. One of the biggest differences is that those other materials have wider band gaps. Silicon is dominant today in part because it is abundant and in part because everyone understands how to work with it. And for those reasons and others, silicon is much cheaper compared to other semiconductors. A wide band gap is a very useful characteristic in a semiconductor, but wide band gap materials are, at the moment, more difficult to process and still more expensive. In some cases, that extra effort and expense is worth it. 
if not absolutely necessary, however. That is especially so today in a growing number of power ICs. If you want to learn more about why and how, I encourage you to read our coverage of these technologies in EE Times and in our sister publication, Power Electronics News. We've got some links on the podcast webpage. Among the wideband gap semiconductors, Diamond has the highest power handling, the highest frequency capabilities, the fastest switching speeds, and the highest thermal conductance, Adam Kahn explained. Diamond is being used in some power ICs in automotive, aerospace, and defense applications, especially in places that are subject to high heat. Where ICs get made is intimately tied up with how they get made. There are only a few companies that are capable of making the most advanced ICs in the world. In recent years, the largest, most advanced manufacturers by far have been Intel in the U.S., TSMC in Taiwan, and Samsung in South Korea. Any talk about reviving manufacturing in the U.S. is anchored by Intel, which has facilities scattered around the country, though some of its most extensive operations are in Arizona and in Oregon. Because of Intel, America has much of the critical infrastructure necessary to support more domestic manufacturing. That's including human know-how. It's folly to set up a semiconductor fab in a place where you can't find qualified engineers to run it. When the Trump administration invited TSMC to set up an operation in the U.S., TSMC could take the offer seriously because it knows that if it did set up in the U.S., many of its needs would be easily met. When Congress started devising bills to revive U.S. IC manufacturing, Intel provided a solid anchor for all of it. And then, everyone talking about reviving domestic semiconductor manufacturing was sideswiped when Intel CEO Bob Swan intimated last week that the company might cease competing to develop the world's most advanced IC processing technologies. Intel's vaunted manufacturing operations have been stumbling in recent years. The company experienced a significant delay in its 10 nanometer node, a delay that cost the company the substantial technology lead in semiconductor manufacturing it had been credited with. The company has been having trouble at the subsequent 7 nanometer node as well. As we noted earlier, it makes economic sense to cite manufacturing where it's least expensive to do so, and that really isn't the U.S. But as we also noted earlier, economics is no longer the definitive factor in the decision anymore. So, should Intel throw in the towel on semiconductor manufacturing? Or, as longtime business journalist Bolaji Ojo noted, should it consider another alternative? Here he is with international editor Junko Yoshida. So what exactly Intel CEO Bob Swan say last week? Well, um, okay. All right, Junko, but I'm going to start by telling you this up front. I have very, very strong views on this whole situation with, um, uh, with Intel. So I need to just kind of forewarn you about that. Maybe it's because I've been writing about it for so long and I've kind of been advocating the same thing. But you asked, what did they really announce? Uh, Bob Swan made a he made an announcement that was not an announcement. Basically, he dropped hints all over the place about where Intel is and what he expects Intel will do uh, later on. But he didn't really quite say, well, this is where we're headed. This is what we're going to do. 
He didn't say that. He just said, you know, um, we may move to the left or we may move to the right, but we're planning enough, we're making enough plans so that if we want to move to the left, we can move to the left. If we want to go right, we can go right. The problem is when you get to a crossroads, you don't take the two. You have to take one. So what exactly did he say? I'll, I'll read just something to you. First, they're having problems with their seven nanometer technology development. That's very, very well known. So what he is now saying, and I'm quoting him here, is that they are trying, that they're going to be pretty pragmatic so that they're going to decide whether they want to make stuff inside or make stuff outside. That they have the optionality to build internally, mix and match, inside and outside, or go outside in its entirety. That's a quote. So I'm going to take that again, Junko. We want to be able to mix and match inside and outside or go outside in its entirety if we need to. This is not the kind of language that should be coming from a company like Intel. This is not the, on such a topic. Basically, you could abandon your process technology development and go outside, or you could stay inside. You're talking of a company that spent literally tens of billions of dollars on R&D and capital equipment. That, for me, is a fumble. But did, what was uh, what was your take? I mean, after reading that Bob Swan's uh, statement, uh, what was your initial take on this? They're going out. They're going outside. I mean, look, one day after, one day after he, well, I'm sorry, not a day, uh, several days after the, uh, Bob Swan made that announcement, there were reports out of uh, Taiwan saying that Intel had placed very large orders on the same level of nanometers with Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. So this this is kind of like, you know, already you've taken those actions, you've already moved along towards it before you start to make an announcement that's really like testing the market. How will the market respond is what I think they're doing. They really want to kind of hedge, but the reality is that the company has already taken that action of, you know, signing up with TSMC for the next generation of components that it needs. So this is the road that everybody else in the U.S. semiconductor industry has taken. This is the well-traveled road, you know, go, go, go to become found, you know, rather than being a, being, being proud, being a proud foundry, they want to go fabulous. I mean, that is the obvious option that everybody else taken. So there's really no surprises there if Intel has taken that, has decided to take that road. However, you actually, this is classic Bolaji, in my opinion, you argue against your initial take and wrote another blog this week. Tell us more. You, you're calling it as a sort of the third option. Intel still have the third option? Tell Intel, Intel has always had options. Intel is not just any company in the semiconductor world. So you said to me that everybody is doing it. Just because everybody is doing it doesn't mean that Intel should be one of those companies that should even consider this at all. Now, if you really want to juxtapose everything, I will say to you this. Intel is doing it, okay? Qualcomm is doing it. Broadcom is doing it. NXP, whoever, all of them are doing it, but not Intel up until this point, right? So let's compare two other companies. Let's bring this up. 
let's say that Samsung already just suddenly announces that it's going to be sourcing wafers from TSMC. How would you react? Everybody is doing it. Samsung is the number two global semiconductor company globally, right? Intel is number one. These two companies have always done all of these process work, this technology process work in-house. And they spend a lot of money doing it. And they have the capacity to do it. And they also have the volume to drive it. So why would they go in that direction where you basically put all your eggs? Well, you may end up putting all your eggs in one basket alongside everybody else in the world. Now, Junko, this is where the danger, there are several ways you could look at this. One, you know, how many founders really are out there? How many founders really are out there that have the capacity to do and to handle everything that Intel does? That's number one. If that, if those foundries are handling what Intel is able to, what what Intel is able to order, that means that they are also able to handle, and the pressure is going to come from everything else that everybody else is putting in as orders. So at some point there is going to be a bottleneck. At some point, now we can say. We can say that, okay, at this moment, what Intel may do is just say, okay, here's a portion of our orders. But this thing gets sweet. You know, that's what that's what pulled in all of the other semiconductor companies. You know, you try it, you taste it a little bit, you say, oh, wow, this is good. Okay, our costs are lower. You know, all of those stuff. Somebody else is picking up all of these R&D expenses. We don't have to spend so much on capital equipment. So let's give more to them. That's what's going to happen to Intel, that's kind of getting sucked into a bog. Slowly, you get sucked into it to the point where some years from now, I'm projecting five to 10 years, all of a sudden, Intel is looking at outsourcing everything that it's producing in-house and shutting down its fabs. Maybe, you know, leasing those fabs to, um, to TSMC. The question that I think the industry needs to ask is this, what happens eventually when everybody graduates or gravitates to TSMC and Samsung. How many other foundries are there? Global foundry? I mean, who else is able to handle this volume? Okay, so that makes four. All right, well, now you know you know where the next foundry is going to be. You know who's going to come up with the next foundry? I, I hope everybody globally is listening to this. China is going to be the next global foundry power. If that's what you want, I'm not being political here, but the reality is this. China will then set up the foundry. So maybe one day, Intel is going to be sourcing its wafers from China. Let's, let's wait for that world. There's another danger. This, this, and this one is much more concerning. Semiconductors, if you look at what you and I have been covering over the last 20 to 30 years, the reality is that the progression of semiconductors and the way by which it's going into every segment of the economy is very, very fast, very rapid. The changes that have been that have been brought into every single person's life and into the economy and into the military, to aviation, automotive, and all of that as a result of semiconductors, very wonderful things that have been happening. But this is just the beginning. We're just at the beginning of what semiconductors will do in all our lives the things that technologies will do in all our lives. And we want to hand over that process technology to another part of the world. We don't want to be involved in it. In the meantime, if you look at relationships between countries, at this, at this moment, how much under, let's say, I'm not being political like I said, but how much trust does the US have in Canada or Mexico? 
those and those are neighboring countries, right? Not to talk of France and the UK, France and Germany. Not to men now mention. Let's go overseas. How much trust do you really have in China? How much trust does the EU have in China? How much trust does the US have in China? And the knowledge that is attendant upon the, the, the process development, if we now move it offshore. When you don't use it, you lose those skills. That is my concern. Yeah. Well, you, you, I agree. That geopolitical issue, you said that you're not being political, but there, there is a geopolitical you know, aspect of this whole discussion. But let's talk about t- technology side of things. Actually, you have been advocating that uh, for the you know, you've been writing about Intel for a long time. So you've been writing in our sister publication, um, you know, things like rethinking Intel's greatest asset or that talking about, um, you know, analyzing Intel must reinvent itself. You've been advocating this position that Intel really should leverage its foundry business. But the truth of matter is Intel has not been able to make a lot of money out of its custom Foundry business. Why is that? Because it, because Intel did not focus on it. Because the Intel did not make it a core service to customers. Look, I can go back. I, I've, I've gone through so many of these different things. Paulo Tellini used to kind of say, "Well, you know, it's a it's something that we're just doing on the side." Intel CFO used to say the same thing: "We're just doing it on the side." Why the heck are you doing it on the side if you have the resources? in-house to do this. The reason why Intel was doing it on the side was because Intel was feeding so fat elsewhere. That's the problem, Junko. When you when you are enjoying something that you're doing so well, when you have a near monopoly, which Intel had in microprocessors, why look elsewhere? But the, that, that, the, the concern with that kind of position is that you're not looking forward. I wrote it about, I don't know, 10 plus years ago that, you know, this microprocessor thing, this, this, this feeding trough that Intel was gorging itself on was going to be problematic down the road. So what you do is that you look further ahead. That's what Intel's founders did. That's what Gordon Moore did. That's what people like um, Craig Barrett have done. That's what Andy Grove did. Andy Grove got Intel out of DRAM, not because the DRAM was just so terrible they just knew that one day this wasn't going to be a good business for them. It wasn't going to be the kind of business that they would have a dominating position. And so they did. The only company today that has the capacity to take on TSMC is Intel. Intel, about five, ten years ago, was so many technology nodes ahead of TSMC. Very, very many technology nodes ahead of TSMC. And TSMC wasn't didn't get out of the market. TSMC just said, okay, you're ahead of us. Well, we're going to plow in. We're going to keep trying. We're going to keep doing our best because we have customers that are banging on our door saying they want our service. So TSMC kept doing it until TSMC overtook Intel. How the heck did Intel allow anybody to overtake it? Now, you also asked me, I know, you know we've got sh- very short time left, but you also asked me, you said, why was Intel not successful? Well, Intel wasn't successful because Intel wasn't focused on it, period. They need to change that dynamic. And right now, the biggest problem that Intel has is that Intel wants to be everything to everybody. Name the market. Just go and listen to their conference call. They want to be in AI. They want to be in connectivity. They want to be in automotive. They, they want to be, actually, they want to be on the moon. They want to be on their way to Mars. 
That was not how Intel became dominant in microprocessors. It identified a certain particular, a certain segment of the industry, and it focused on it, and it poured all kinds of resources into it, and it did well as a result. Intel can still take on TSMC in the foundry business. Two reasons. One, because of Intel itself, because if Intel shoves its head all the way up to Taiwan and decides to stay there, it's going to run into sourcing problems later on. Number two thing is this. Intel can make money in the foundry business. And if it goes into the foundry business, you know what it's going to then have? It's going to be able to have everything that it's looking for today. All of the semiconductor companies out there, they're going to be knocking on its doors. When and if the US or Western countries, the EU and all of them, when they say, listen, we don't want you sourcing so far out. These are, te- these are security, there are security implications here. Intel will become the, the you know, Santa Clara will be the place that every one of these single semi, these semiconductor companies will be going. That is why Intel needs to go here and it has the capacity to do it. It has the resources, it has the money. And right now the US government is able to support this is the time for Intel to do it. Yeah, that's uh, that's an uh, interesting wrinkle that we are seeing now, right? It's um, th- this was not the case uh, three years ago. The situation it, it was it wasn't the case three years yeah. ago. It wasn't the yeah. case ten years ago. Yeah. But even then, even then, Intel really did not need it. Look, if we pull up the numbers, I you know one of the one of the articles I wrote in two thousand and seven, I looked at how much Intel spent on capex and. R&D between 2000 and 2007, it was over $70 billion in seven years. Intel Intel could have financed a whole country at that time. Intel had the money. Somebody was lacking in a vision for the future. That is what I hold against Bob Swan today. What is the vision here? Junko, look, let's forget everything else that we've talked about. If you ask anybody today, what is the Intel vision? I can read what he said to you. It's a mush. He said, we see a world where everything increasingly looks like a computer, including our homes, our cars, our cities, our hospitals, our factories, and now even our schools. Believe me, everybody also sees that world that he's describing. Intel is the only company that can position itself at the heart of all of these and serve as a foundry. It's like the gold rush. If you remember the gold rush, the people who made the most money during the gold rush in California were not the, the folks that were running around, you know, digging up gold. It was, it was, they, they were the folks that were supplying all the shovels and, and wheelbarrows and, all, and the clothes and the drinks and all of that. They were the ones who made the most money. Intel needs to put itself at the heart of the supply chain, the semiconductor supply chain, and be the one servicing all of those countries, all of those companies in North America, in Europe, and in Asia. It shouldn't be the one rushing to Asia to go and get wafers from TSMC. That's a that that's so that's a totally that, that's a totally different mindset. I don't know if uh, if well, the, but what two problems? One is I don't know if uh, Intel is ready for that. And second, if the financial community was uh, the financial community, what do you think stuff. the financial community said when Intel decided to get out of DRAM? The financial community, the financial community looks short term. Intel has to make the case, and that case is long term. That case is 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. Junko, semiconductors are at the heart of everything that every one of us is doing today. The heart of everything. My very first vehicle was a Volkswagen Beetle. 
you put that car beside my current vehicle, you think that, you know, you, you kind of slap me on both sides of the cheeks if I put that on the road. There are, God knows, you write about sensors, thousands of sensors, gauging everything, controlling everything. Now, leap forward 20, 40, 50 years. My problem is that Intel is about to give off process technology. When you give up that kind of engineering expertise, you pay a horrible price for it down the road. And it's not just going to be Intel. But Intel does not have to give it up because it has the financial muscle right yeah. now okay. to take on TSMC. And it can make the yeah. case. And it's time to double down. That's what you're saying. Absolutely. Again, all of this is happening in the context of the lockdown associated with the pandemic and the trade war with China. But now that conflict is more than just a trade war. It's escalated into another new, all-encompassing political conflict that hinges upon the electronics market. EE Times and some of our other Aspen Corp colleagues have just published a set of related stories exploring the new technology Cold War. There's a link to it on the podcast page. And of course, you can find the gateway to the special project on our homepage in the upper left-hand corner at eetimes.com. Just about every week, we like to celebrate the anniversaries of interesting events in technology history. Actually, this is becoming an excuse to wander deeper into rabbit holes on the web, but whatevs. Ready, my intrepid historonauts? Today, we're going to set our Wayback Machine to July 25th, 1976. That was the day the Viking Orbiter 1 took a photo of a rock formation on Mars. Yep, that was it. Until some nameless drone in NASA's PR department tried to jazz it up a little by saying the rock, quote, resembles a human head, unquote. This seemingly innocuous quip was followed by an explanation that shadows gave the illusion of eyes, nose, and mouth. Whoopsies. The effect was to set off more conspiracy theories than the line that kind of sort of sounded like Paul was buried at the end of Strawberry Fields Forever. Somebody helpfully pulled the word pareidolia out of wherever it is that they store words that nobody ever uses, but it was too late. Tabloid papers had already glommed on to the face on Mars stories and they were running with it. None with as much glee as the Weekly World News, which was the only paper in the world to tell the truth about Bigfoot, Bat Boy, and the half-man, half-alligator creature known as the Manigator. One story is about there being a face buried under the polar ice on Earth that is identical to the one on Mars. It appears on a front page that also features stories about a magician reaching into his hat and accidentally pulling out a demon instead of a rabbit. In 1991, the Weekly World News reported that the face on Mars is trying to talk. It quotes stunned scientists who say the lips are moving. Of course, it's all fun and games until somebody loses their mind. Until you find out that there are some people who seem to legitimately and fervently believe the face is proof that there was, or perhaps still is, a civilization on Mars that must have carved the image, which must be some sort of deity. The conspiracy theories got enough out of control that in 1998, 
NASA actually maneuvered the Mars Global Explorer into an orbit where it could take another picture, which revealed that the formation was an unremarkable rock. But, but, some clever people noticed that it was kind of cloudy that day over the formation on Mars, and therefore, any inscriptions of ancient Martians would obviously be obscured from the orbital camera. Aha! Yeah? Huh? Huh? So three years later, in 2001, NASA again diverted the Mars Global Explorer to take yet another picture, this time on a clear day, and with maximum resolution, which showed an unremarkable rock. Well, at least we know the story about the Manigator is true. And I'm going to leave you with a snippet from Bat Boy, the musical. This is from a promotional trailer for the Diva Theater Company's production in 2016. that's it for the weekly briefing for the week ending July 31st. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned, along with other multimedia. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.